Lord, I thank you uh, that you speak to us when we seek you, when we make our petitions to you. You hear us. You reveal your thoughts, your heart to us. And that's what we need more than anything, Lord. We need your mind. We need your heart. We need your burdens. We need to understand the fellowship of your sufferings, the joy of abiding in your love. So, Lord, I do pray as we look at your word this morning that you would cause our hearts to yield further to you, Lord. Help us, Lord, to allow you to give us more of your heart, more of your thoughts. Lord, allow us to share in your burdens, in your cares. And Lord, allow us to join you in prayer and in intercession for souls. And Lord, my prayer is that we would become as you are, as you were when you were driven to that cross. Lord, that all of our being, every fiber within us would be consumed with that same passion of love and mercy that you showed towards us in the work of the cross when you came and died for us and suffered, took upon yourself our sins, were chastised for our peace, was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, But Lord, because of what you did, you've made a way to release those in bondage, Lord. You've rescued us from our captivity. And Lord, now our lives are yours. And Lord, I pray that you would create a greater desire in us to be those ambassadors, to be vessels that you can plead through for souls to be reconciled with you just like you reconciled us, Lord. God, make it more real to us. The reality of eternity, the reality of a soul that's lost forever without you, the reality that you made real to us in our own souls, Lord, when you rescued us. God, make it more real to us. Open our hearts, open up our understanding to know that love, your love, that is a passion to lay our lives down for the sake of another. That is willing to cry vehemently with tears for the souls of others, Lord. That's ready to forsake all. Lord, and really it's our reasonable service in the light of the mercy you've done to us, Lord. So God, do the work in us in a greater way, Lord, that we might have that same passion you have for souls so they can use us in this church and your body the way you want to in this time we are living, God, where so many souls are being deceived and flung into eternity without you, Lord. Oh, God, have mercy. Oh, God, hear the cries of us, your people, Lord, today. Do in us, Lord, a greater work of your heart and your mind that you want your people to walk in, Lord. Fill us with that same spirit, Lord, that drove you into the wilderness, that drove you to the cross, Lord. Have your way in us, Lord. So God, I pray you would open our hearts and ears to your word, to your voice this morning. Help us to receive and to know the things you're desiring us to know. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. 
I'm going to be reading at a Psalm 126 with the backdrop of uh, the book of Nehemiah, because uh, this psalm uh, really is describing uh, God's bringing back his people from captivity under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. That's really what this psalm is speaking to, but it's also got a broader meaning for all of us that we're going to look at this morning. I want to read a verse, though, that came to my mind this morning as I was praying. It's in Ezekiel 9, and it's uh, verse 4. And the sense I get right now is we obviously are in the midst of judgment in this nation. I believe the church also is at a place where God is judging his people. And I believe we are also headed into a much more turbulent time. I believe we will face persecution in ways that we just have not experienced. And I believe we're close. Just like they were in the time of Ezekiel when he was prophesying to the people. And the Lord said to him in this verse, to go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who were sighing and crying over the abominations that were done in that city. And I believe there's a remnant. God has been stirring his people. He's been stirring us who are sighing. We see the landscape. We're choosing to see. We're listening. We're hearing what's happening, not just in the church, but in the world all around us. And it, there's a growing sense in our hearts, a groaning, a sighing, God, when? A mourning over the condition of the church, over the condition of souls, over the name of God that has been dishonored in the land. And there's a sighing, there's a sorrowful spirit that's coming upon our hearts. And it's God stirring us. It's God's heart. And that's, this psalm is going to speak to that. And we're going to see in the book of Nehemiah, we're just going to look at chapter 1, that sorrow and grief and tears and supplications are what precede God restoring and God reviving his people. And so I want to encourage those of you this morning that are sighing, that are crying out to the Lord. This is going to be an encouragement to you. Because I'm really going to focus on the last two verses of this psalm. But I'm going to read the whole psalm just to, to start off here. Psalm 126. And I like the title, A Joyful Return to Zion. And it's, again, it's believed it was written by Ezra. And it's a picture of the Israelites coming back out of their captivity back to their land. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who were in a dream. In other words, it was too good to be true. That's how awesome it was, what God had done. And then our mouth was filled with laughter our tongue with singing. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And they prayed, bring back our captivity, O Lord, as streams in the south. And then the promise in verse 5, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, 
shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. What an encouragement for those who understand the depths of mourning and weeping and being brought out of that captivity to sin, to our own rebellion, where we were led astray by the enemy of our souls, and then God rescues us in that place. And that's the joy. I mean, when you think about it, right, all heaven rejoices when a sinner is reconciled to God. But it precedes mourning. Or mourning precedes that. So I just want to take some time to go through this psalm, and then we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 1. Again, this psalm was probably composed by Ezra. And those who returned were basically being exhorted to be thankful to the Lord, but also to remember those who were still in captivity and to be praying for them so that they would be encouraged. And like I said earlier, the true meaning or the sense of this psalm could be applied overall to the whole captivity of mankind to sin. Under sin, under death, under the wrath of God, and under the power of the enemy. I remember what it was like to be under the power, the dominion of sin and death. But I also remember when God brought me out of captivity and the rejoicing. It was like a dream. I was thinking about Glenn's testimony, sitting there in a park. And all of a sudden, God releases him from captivity. And it's like a dream, because it, could this be real? And all of you, I'm sure, have a testimony. Could it be? What is this? This is too good to be true. I never imagined this could happen for me. All I knew was bondage. All I knew was hopelessness. All I knew was a burden that weighed me down my whole life, and it's gone. I'm free. I've been set free. I remember that. That was the whole reason God sent his son into this world, and Jesus proclaimed it when he was about to begin his mission in Luke 4.18. And it's actually the verse for the vision of this church. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Again, how many of us remember when he came to you in your poverty of spirit? When you realized, I can't save myself. I have nothing I can bring to God. And God stepped into that poverty. How many remember that? How many remember the blindness, the groping in the dark, looking for something to satisfy you, and then God opened your eyes to what you were made for, for Him? How many of us remember the oppression we lived under and that being lifted? Wasn't it, again, like a dream? Too good to be true? What about someone else you wept over and prayed for? And then they got set free. What was that like? I'll never forget when Jose, her stepdad, got saved. But I also will never forget the years and years and years of weeping and groaning that I would hear in the bedroom coming from my wife as she was on her knees pleading with God for his soul 
when we get calls that he was, his heart was having a problem or this was happening. I don't know how many times he was on death's doorstep. And the, the nights, my wife would be up weeping, groaning. Sometimes it was just a groan. But I also remember the day when we're out and he's in his 80s now and it's been decades he's been prayed for. And I'm sitting watching some guy in this outdoor mall lead him to Christ and he's in tears repenting and asking Christ into his life. And I'm standing like, this ain't real. This can't be happening. Both of us. Even when we got back to the house, I'm like, did that just happen? This is like a dream. And I'm sure some of you have those testimonies. Maybe a child, maybe a co-worker. You know, you prayed, you wept over. And the joy. And then all those tears, all that sorrow, right? It's kind of like childbirth, right? I mean, I never had a child. I had a kidney stone, which I heard is close or maybe worse. But I remember the relief of that. <laughs> you forget the pain because of the joy. And that's what we're going to experience. And we do experience. Ultimately, in heaven, you understand that. Our stay here is going to be full of sorrow and trials. One day that will be all over. But God gives us tastes now and then where we can rejoice. And again, we see that in Scripture as well. Times of rejoicing. Remember when Peter was in prison and the church was praying for him? You think they were rejoicing? Oh, Peter's in prison. Praise God. He suffered. No, they were worried. So another disciple just got murdered. They were probably weeping. God, please have mercy. God, intervene. The whole church was praying. And what happens? God shows up. God sends an angel into the prison and he wakes Peter up. And Peter, I think, is kind of thinking it's a dream or a vision because it says that. He didn't realize it was really happening. And he walks past the, the door opens. There's prison guards there. You know, he's captive. He ain't going nowhere. But when God steps in, it, I don't care what the situation looks like. He walks out, he gets out, and he finally, like, realizes this is really happening. And then he goes to where they're praying for him, and they're like, it must be his ghost. <laughs> you were praying for It was like a dream. It's Peter. How did that happen? I talked to someone this morning out there that wasn't ready to hear about Jesus. But I'm believing God's going to move on that man. And they'll be rejoicing when he repents and comes to his senses. And God wants us to start believing for that. And the rejoicing, it's not going to be in us. It's not going to be in what we did. It's all going to be for God's glory. Because when he does it, it's obvious. And you'll see that, uh, not today, but the further I get into Nehemiah, when he accomplishes what God has him to do, even though they had to participate, even the people that saw it said, this was God. And that's what God wants. This was God. This wasn't this person. This wasn't this church. This was God. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're believing God for. So he's glorified. So people in this community, so people that are captive will know there is a God. That man will know, no, there is a God. And he knows how to free you. He knows how to set you free. He understands where you're headed. And he's praying. He's got people praying for you. He wept over you in a garden 2,000 years ago. And all heaven will rejoice the day you repent.
It's all him, you understand? Working through surrendered vessels. That's all we are. It's all him working through surrendered vessels. That's what he's after. Let me give me your vessel. Let me put my heart in you. Let me fill you with my spirit. Let me groan through you. Let me allow you to see what I see when I look at a soul, when I hear about what's going on in the world. And God sees it all and he hears it all and he groans and he grieves. And he wants us to share in that. And he desires to intervene. And he's looking for people. Where are they, the ones sighing and crying over the abominations of the land? Where are they? Where are they that will stand in the gap in this hour? You know, it was by the Lord's permission the children of Israel were led into captivity, but it was by his hand they were let out. To God be all the glory. And when that happens, their mouths filled with laughter. Our tongue with singing. And they said, among the nations, the Lord has great, done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. That should be coming out of us all the time. People should look at our lives, hear what comes out of our mouths, and say, God has done a great thing in that person. And that's what I shared with that guy. I told him what great things God had done for me. That I was a hater of God. I blasphemed God. But he saved me. He opened my eyes. And he's no different. And I understand. Because I know what it's like to be in captivity. I know what it's like to shake my fist at God and be a rebel at heart. But I also know what it's like when I experienced His mercy and His grace that I didn't deserve. And I need to share that wherever I go and I need to let people look at my life and say, God has done great things. He's done a great thing in those people. That's who they need to see. And He will, or they will, when we're proclaiming it. And... We'll pray like this in verse 4. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as streams in the south. And just give you a little picture. You know, they're gone for 70 years. No one's really tending the land. You know, there's no crops that have been sown. Um, They come back and it's desolate. There's not much there. And they're praying, Lord, restore the years the locusts have eaten. The land is laid desolate, Lord. Lord, make it. And I was in Israel, and when it's talking about the south, it's talking about the Negev, which is a desert. There's nothing there. But there's, you know, uh, little rivers and tributaries that fill up when it rains. And it's a picture of, Lord... Send your rain to this dry and parched land that was without you for so many years. Lord, send it like those rivers that come in the south and then life. That's what we're praying for. Lord, it's been parched. Your your church has been without your power for so long. God, send floods. Send those streams, Lord, into that dry land, Lord, so life will come back. And there'll be sustenance for our souls and for others. A prayer. Turn turn it as streams in the south. And then the promise. The first one is to a group. It's plural. Those. It's to us. As we pray together. As we weep together. As we believe God together. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joy. And then He. It'll be an individual joy. He 
who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for the sowing, shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. So again, it applies to Israel, but in a greater sense, it applies to us, his servants. A promise to those who are laboring with Christ and for Christ. For those in captivity. And we do it many times with tears, with suffering, which Christ himself endured. We do it sometimes amid persecution, sometimes in affliction, sometimes in sickness, sometimes in pain. In sorrow that we labor in the church, his vineyard, for the sake of souls. And sometimes it feels like there's no benefit to it. It feels like, is this really doing anything? And I know we can feel that way sometimes. I can feel that way sometimes. When I'm not seeing what I think I should see. But God sees totally different um, than we do. It's a promise. The day will come when we will reap in joy. And the harvest will be plentiful. Both in this life, but ultimately we got to understand in the life to come. I know there's going to be a lot more rejoicing in heaven because we're going to understand and see things more than we do now. And we're going to understand how much more God did with our little. And there's going to be, I don't know how it is exactly with people coming up to us. And we're like, I don't know you. Oh, but you shared with so-and-so and but whatever. We just have no idea. Maybe we'll spend a thousand years just doing that. I don't know. And falling down at Jesus' feet. But it was you, Lord. It was you. It was you. Because, you know, it's going to be all about him. Oh, what a day of rejoicing that's going to be. But until then, we're to go forth with tears. Jesus went forth weeping. Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And he bore precious seed. What he spoke about in that verse I read out of Luke. Sowing it all around him until his own body was sown as a seed. When he died on the cross. Buried like a grain of wheat in the grave. But he rose and he's in heaven now. And again, that's where all the rejoicing will be with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God when Jesus brings back all of his sheaves with him. Man, what a day that's going to be. Matthew Henry said this, There are tears which themselves are the seed that we must sow. Tears of sorrow for sin, our own, others, Tears of sympathy with an afflicted church. Tears of tenderness and prayer. And tears under the word of God. The most successful undertakings have, of, have often been commenced in the midst of great difficulties and with much weeping. The spiritual seed that is abundantly watered with godly tears will bring forth a rich harvest of golden sheaves. We see this principle played out over and over in Scripture and in history. And so I'm going to read now, uh, just here, chapter 1 in the book of Nehemiah, a picture of that. When Nehemiah prays for his people. He's still in the land of their captivity and here in verse 1 it says uh, the words of Nehemiah 
the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had, who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. In other words, he inquired. He was choosing to hear and see and know what was going on, and we have to be willing to see and hear what's going on around us. And so that's what was happening. And they said to him, the survivors who are left from the captivity and the prophets are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So it was. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. And I mourned for many days. And I was fasting and I was praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, oh great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please God, I'm begging you. Let your ear be attentive, your eyes be open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant. Which I pray before you now, day and night. In other words, I'm consumed with this. It's taken over my thoughts. It's all I can think about now. God, hear my cries. Hear my prayers. That I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel. See, we might do that for ourselves if we're really in a jam. But what about for other people? And then he says, which we have sinned. So when we pray here for revival, it's we. I'm guilty. I've strayed. I've allowed the world. I've allowed things to dull my sensitivity. In a sense, I've been taken captive by the spirit of this world in, in subtle ways. I need reviving. I need that fire burning me. I need my heart broken over a lost world. I need to know what it's like to cry day and night and weep over souls in a greater way. I'm still very cold-hearted if I'm really honest with myself at the plight of souls around me. It should be greater if I really understood the way God does. If I was seeing how he really sees and if I truly was um, bearing the same burdens he bears. He lets me taste now and then. But it's day and night, day and night. And it's because of our sin. It's because we have acted, uh, sorry, it's uh, your servants and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. Now, it would have been easy for him because he probably grew up in the captivity. He could have said, this wasn't my fault. This was my father's fault. I wound up here because of what my fathers did. But he says, no, wait. It's like us. We could say, it's Adam's fault. I'm like this, right? No, we're all guilty. We're all rebels. We're all guilty before God. We've acted very corruptly against you. We've not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray. The word you commanded. So he's praying back to God his promise. And really that's what we're doing. And it's right to do that because he's faithful. He's a God of his word. He does what he says. Remember I pray the word you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, 
I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, I pray. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And really, it's those who are responding, who are grieving at how God's name has been dishonored. And something has stirred in them and they're sighing and they're weeping and they're crying over the abominations of the land because they fear God. And they want to hold him up in the honor and the place he deserves that he wasn't. I pray. Let your servant prophesy for this day. I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And he was talking about the king. For I was the king's cupbearer. Basically, what Nehemiah was saying, Lord, here I am, use me. Use me. And I'm not going to get into, God grants him this request. And we'll maybe look at that a little bit next week. But the focus I want to look at today is really the sorrow and the willingness of Nehemiah to embrace God's heart for his people. Blessed are those who sorrow. Blessed are they. There's often a lot in the state of the church and the world that grieves Christians that are zealous for the name of God. Division, error, opposition, reproach. Broken walls, as it were, which is what Nehemiah was going to restore. Where all the church's foes enter and injure and scatter and destroy the sheep. And that's what's been happening for decades. The perishing souls entering eternity without God on a daily basis should awaken our hearts to this kind of sorrow. We see this quality in the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 2.4. Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Not that you should be grieved, that you might know the love which I have so abundantly towards you. Romans 9.1, he says, I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow, continual grief in my heart. I wish myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. That, is, to me, is the ultimate giving of yourself for another soul. I wish myself accursed from Christ. I'm willing to suffer hell for this person so that they can enter heaven. That's a passion that only God has. That's not the Apostle Paul. You understand it. That's God's heart working through the Apostle Paul. Who had so surrendered his life. Who had so encountered. You know, we, we read. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. God came to him at his worst, and he set him free. He opened his eyes. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, to me, is one of the uh, a wonderful example of the love of Christ. He talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, where you know we're constantly hearing about his testimony, but he talks about if one died for all, then we basically, we should not live our lives for ourselves any longer, but for him who died for us. It's the love of Christ that compels me. It's him pleading through me. He's given me now a ministry of reconciliation. That's the tears. That's the sorrow. 
That's what drives you to suffer for Christ, for the sake of souls. The reality of the mercy He's done to me. The reality of His love to me. The reality of how He suffered and died for me. It's the love of Christ that compels me. Well, I want fruit like Paul's ministry. Well, Paul said, uh, serving the, I've served the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, uh, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. I kept back nothing that was helpful, but I proclaimed it to you. I taught it publicly from house to house testifying to the Jews and the Greeks, repentant towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. I want fruit like Paul. Well, then I have to learn to suffer like Paul with many tears, with many trials. We have it all backwards in the American church. Who wants to see a move of God like we've been hearing about on Wednesdays? Right? We believe in God for that. Well, here's one testimony of someone that was used like that. My soul was in utter agony. I spent almost the entire day in prayer in my stateroom, walking the de- deck in intense agony in view of the state of things. In fact, I felt crushed with a burden that was on my soul. It was the spirit of prayer that was upon me that I often felt and experienced. But perhaps never before to such a degree for so long a time. After a day of such unspeakable wrestling and agony in my soul. Just at night, the subject cleared up to my mind. The Spirit led me to believe that all would come out right. That God had yet work for me to do. That I, that I might be at rest. That the Lord would go forward in His work and give me strength to take any part in that He desired. That happened for me about a, two weeks ago. God came in a service that we were at in New York, and he basically said, I'm going to do it, son. All the tears, all the heartache, all the trials, I've seen it, I'm going to do it. It was like God blew a, a wind in my sails. He spoke a clear word to my wife and I. He is going to do what he says he's going to do. And we need to persevere. We need to hold fast. We need to not grow weary in doing good because we will reap if we don't lose heart. In Principles of Prayer, Finney says this of holy prayer partnership with Christ. Doubtless, one great reason why God requires the exercise of this agonizing prayer is that it forms such a bond of union between Christ and the church. It unites us with him, with his heart. It's as if Christ pours the outflowing of his own benevolent heart into his people and leads them to sympathize and cooperate with him as they never could do in any other way. In other words, God working through us. Because that's his heart. Ezekiel 18.23, God says, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord, that he should not turn from his ways and live? 2 Peter 3.9, He's not willing that any would perish, but all would come to everlasting life. 1 Timothy 2 says, Therefore I exhort you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men. Because God desires all men to be saved. That's his heart. All men to be saved. Jesus died for the salvation of all. Not just a select few. That's the heart of God. That's what caused Jesus to be a man of sorrows. 
who was acquainted with grief. The scriptures bear it out. John eleven thirty five. It says Jesus wept. It says in that passage also, he groaned in his spirit. Now, I think Jesus probably laughed with his disciples. I don't think Jesus was a morbid person to be around. I just don't think so. I don't think kids would have wanted to get on his lap. But it never mentions in Scripture where Jesus laughed. But it does mention a lot about grief and sorrow. It says in Luke 19.41, as he drew near the city and he saw it, he wept over it. Are we weeping over Grant County? Are we weeping over the housing authority? Are we weeping over the schools? It says in Hebrews 5, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, was heard because of his godly son. And even though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of salvation to all who obey him. And Isaiah 53, 3 says, he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. What do we weep over? We all have things, I know personally, we can weep over things in our own lives that cause us to weep before God. We have unsaved family members we weep for. The lost souls we see all around us every day. The suffering, the consequences of sin we read about in the news, we hear about. All the tragic things and ramifications of sin and the curse of sin in the earth. But most of all, the reality of an eternity for those who are perishing without Christ. That needs to be more real to us, more than anything. We want extraordinary results, right? And they are possible. We want signs and wonders. But it's only through extraordinary efforts in the spiritual realm these things will happen. Nothing short of continuous, agonizing, pleading for souls, hours upon hours, days and nights of prayer will avail anything. So God is calling us to be his instruments in this hour. He's calling us to play our part in his purpose and his plans to a lost and dying world. We've been commissioned. That's what the church is here for, not here for a social club. We've been commissioned by God as a church to go with that same anointing that Jesus walked in. The Spirit of the Lord is upon us because he has anointed us to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent us to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's why we're here. That's our mission. That should be our all-consuming passion in life. That's what we're believing God for as we prepare the way for him in our own lives, in this body, and in our community. But that passion is born in sorrow. It's a passion that chooses to see. It's a passion that chooses to hear. It's a passion with eyes of compassion to relieve and alleviate the burden and consequences of sin for those who are in captivity. It's a passion that consumes us. It compels us through life. It's a passion that's born out of our own encounter with the love of God that rescued us of our, out of our own captivity. Now, I rejoice because we are all headed to a time 
Well, there'll be no more weeping. And that's our hope. Right? Revelation 21.4. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, no sorrow, no more crying. There's going to be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Right, because these words are true and they're faithful. So that one day, that's going to happen. But Jesus said, In the world, you're going to have tribulation. There's going to be sorrow. But for us as believers, most of that should be for souls. And the reality of souls perishing without Christ. It should drive us to be consumed with his love and to give our lives. Say, Lord, here, here I am, Lord. Right? Romans 12, that's what it says. It, it's our reasonable service in light of the mercy he's done for us. Lord, here I am. Use me. Send me. Take my life. Plead through me, God. Use me for souls. <clears throat> Even if I don't see the results now. Now, I'm going to finish with a story. I, I listened to a talk on this psalm, and the guy shared a story. And I believe it was an AG missionary couple. It's amazing. So I'm going to read this to close. Um, I did have it here. Let's see. Yeah, their names were David and Sevilla Flood. And in 1921, um, they went with their two-year-old son from Sweden to the heart of Africa, which was then called the Belgian Congo. They met up with another young Scandinavian couple called the Ericsons. And the four of them sought God for direction. Um, and in those days of tenderness, devotion, and sacrifice that felt led of the Lord to go out from the main mission station and take the gospel to a remote area. And it says they went from village to village. In every village they went to, they were rejected, rejected, rejected. And there was much weeping. There was much sorrow. There were no open doors. <clears throat> and they finally came to a village <clears throat> where, again, it was... It was the most violent village they encountered thus far. And the chief basically told them, you will not enter here. And, and they opted to go up a hill, on a hill, outside of this tribe. And they set up camp. They built little huts. And they prayed and they wept for the souls of that tribe. There were no other encouragements. Malaria continued to strike one member and, and uh, one little band after another. In, the in, in time, the Ericsons basically said, we've had enough. We've had enough suffering, and they left to return. But David and Sevilla Flood remained to go on alone. Then of all things, Sevea found herself pregnant in the middle of the primitive wilderness. When the time came for her to give birth, the village chief softened enough to allow a midwife to help her, and a little girl was born whom they named Aina. But the delivery was exhausting, and Sevea flood was already weak from bouts of malaria. The birth process was a heavy blow to her stamina, she lasted only another 17 days. Now, before she died, there was a little boy that would bring them eggs from the village. And Sevilla would pray and weep for this little boy. And whenever he came, she would show him the kindness of Christ and share Christ with him. And her husband remembered the day she saw him, her, kneeling with this little boy as he gave his life for Christ. But he couldn't tell anybody. Otherwise, they wouldn't let him back in the village. Also, so she dies right after that. And her husband snapped inside. It was enough for him. He dug a grave. He buried his 27-year-old wife. And he took his children back the mountain to the mission station. He gave his newborn daughter to the Ericsons. 
he snarled and said, I'm going back to Sweden. I've lost my wife and obviously I can't take care of this baby. God has ruined my life. With that, he headed for the port, rejecting not only his calling, but God himself. Within eight months, a tribe poisoned the Ericsons and they both died. So she was without parents again. Then the baby was turned over to some American missionaries who changed her Swedish name to Aggie and eventually brought her back to the United States at age three. They loved the little girl, and they were afraid that if they tried to return to Africa, some legal obstacle might separate her from them. So they stayed in the United States, and they switched from their missionary work to pastoral ministry. So she grew up in South Dakota, a young woman. She attended North Central Bible College. That's why I think it was A.G., because that's A.G. Um, And she met, married a young man named Dewey Hurst. Years passed. um, They had a fruitful ministry. She gave birth to her first daughter and then a son. And in time, her husband became president of a Christian college in the Seattle area. And one day... Out of nowhere, she doesn't know where it came, a Swedish magazine was on her table at home. But it was in Swedish, and she couldn't read it, and she started flipping through it, and she saw a picture of a grave with a white cross with her biological mother's name on it. And she thought, what is this? And she got all excited, and she ran back to the church where there was a, someone that could translate it for her. And the instructor summarized the story, and it was about missionaries who had come long ago, the birth of a white baby, the death of a young mother, and the one little African boy who had been led to Christ, and how after the whites had all left, the boy had grown up and finally persuaded the chief to let him build a school in in the village. And the article said gradually he won all his students to Christ. And the children led their parents to the Christ. I couldn't help but think of uh, Meadowview. One little boy. Even the chief had become a Christian. And now there were 600 Christian believers in that one village. All because of the sacrifice of David and Sevilla Flood. So for the hearse... 25th wedding anniversary, the college presented them with a gift of a vacation to Sweden. And there she sought to find her real father, who was still living. An old man now, David Flood had remarried, fathered four more children, and generally dissipated his life with alcohol. He had recently suffered a stroke, still bitter. He had one rule in his family, never mention the name of God. God took everything from me. After an emotional reunion with her half-brothers and half-sister, Aggie brought up the subject of seeing her father, and they hesitated. You can talk to him, they replied, even though he's very ill now, but you need to know whenever he nears, hears the name of God, he flies into a rage. She was not deterred. She walked into the squalid apartment with liquor bottles everywhere. She approached a 73-year-old man lying in a rumpled bed. She said, Papa. He turned and began to cry. Iena, he said, I never meant to give you away. It's all right, Papa, she replied, taking him gently in her arms. God took care of me, and then he instantly stiffened, and the tears stopped. God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. And he turned his face to the back of the wall. And Aggie stroked his face and continued undaunted. Papa, I've got a story to tell you. And it's a true story. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you won to the Lord grew up to win the whole village to Jesus. The one seed you planted 
kept growing and growing. Today, there's 600 African people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. Papa, Jesus loves you. He never hated you. The old man turned back to look into his daughter's eyes. His body relaxed. He began to talk, and by the end of the afternoon, he had come back to God, the God he had resented for so many decades. Over the next few days, father and daughter enjoyed warm moments together. Aggie and her husband soon returned to America. Within a few weeks, David Flood had gone into eternity. A few years later, the Hearst were attending a high-level evangelism conference in London, England, where a report was given from the nation of Zayar, uh, the former Belgian Congo, the superintendent of the natural church representing some 110 thousand baptized believers spoke eloquently of the gospel spread in his nation aggie could not help going to ask him afterward if he had ever heard of david and Sabea flood yes madam he replied it was Sabea flood who led me to christ it was the boy who brought food to your parents before you were born in fact to this day your mother's grave and her memory are honored by all of us. He embraced her in a long, sobbing hug, and he continued, you must come to Africa to see, because your mother is the most famous person in our history. In time, that's exactly what she did. They were welcomed by cheering throngs of villagers. She even met the man who had been hired by her father many years before to carry her back down the map the mountain in a hammock cradle. The most dramatic uh, moment, of course, was when the pastor escorted Aggie to see her mother's white cross for herself. She knelt in the soil to pray and gave thanks. Later that day in the church, the pastor read from John twelve twenty four. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Then he followed with Psalm 126.5. Those who sold in tears will reap with songs of joy. God is giving us an invitation here to enter into the, that sorrow, those tears, but also the joy. And we might not see what we want to see, but he wants us to trust him anyway. That our labor, our prayers, our tears, they're not going to be in vain. And I believe with all of my heart, God's going to do something so wonderful. We're going to think we're in a dream. That's what I'm believing him for. Even if I don't see it now. I know he is working out his will. And I want to encourage you all this morning, don't lose heart and allow God to draw you into his own heart. That's the invitation this morning, to enter into God's heart for souls. To say, Lord, here I am. Use me as your instrument. For those in captivity, Lord, use me for souls. That's all that matters. I want to be consumed with that. I want that to be my passion. So I'm just going to end this morning with a prayer for all of us. Because we can't produce this ourselves. God, make this place, make our hearts a birthing room. God, I pray you would begin to give us a deeper burden, a deeper reality. First and foremost of what you've done for us, Lord. God, help us to remember, Lord, the, the bondage, the suffering, the lostness, the hopelessness we all dwelt in. But Lord, the day you came in and rescued us, God, remind us of the mercy you did for us. Remind us of the reality of hell and where we were headed. But yet, Lord, you saved us. You rescued us. Reveal that first, God. Bring us back to our first love, Lord. 
where we're enraptured, where we understand the mercy that's been done to us, Lord, but then where we get up and it's that same love that compels us. It's that same love that's a willingness to suffer with, to pray, to weep over souls, Lord, to give you everything in our lives for the sake of others, to let go of our own wills and our own plans and ambitions, God, to give you everything, our time, our resources, everything. Even if it's for the sake of one soul, Lord, it's worth it. So God, have your way, Lord, have your way. Produce in us, God, what we cannot produce in ourselves. God, we cry out to you today, Lord. Give us your heart. Allow us to share in your burden, Lord, and also the joy of watching sinners repent, Lord. There's a joy in suffering with you, Lord. There is. It's not something we should be afraid of, Lord. We should embrace it. There's a beauty in suffering for you that only those that suffer for you understand, Lord. So help us, God. Release us, God, from any grip this world has on us, Lord. Help us with the distractions, God, that are numbing us to the reality of what is happening. God, open our eyes once again to souls that are perishing. Oh, God, help us to groan. Help us to weep, God, for souls. God, use us. Take our lives, Lord. And Lord, I thank you. This is your heart. It's you pleading. It's you stirring, God. It's, it's your Holy Spirit, God. So, Lord, I trust you to answer this prayer because it's your will. It's your heart. It's what you want, Lord. That's why you saved us. That's why you left us here. To be that light, to be vessels, Lord, fit for the master's use. So, God, here we are. Here we are, God. Use us. Use us, Lord. And I thank you, God. I thank you, God. And I trust you to do above and beyond what I even know to ask or think. Because that's the kind of God you are. And, Lord, I look forward to the day. When we're rejoicing, Lord, when sinners are repenting and coming to you. Lord, I thank you. I thank you, God. And I love you, God. Have your way, Lord. Have your way. Have your way, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.